If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here Everything is personal right here Lend me, end on the N.A. Heat guaranteed when you press in the play Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. As always, welcoming my wonderful co-host, Ms. Kimberly Dillon, who's in the car driving from, is it Hall of Flowers? Hall of Flowers, yes. So hopefully right. I'm not making too much background noise. No, you're, you're great. Well, thank you for joining us. And I'm super excited because we have the great Dr. Peter Greenspoon, uh, MD, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, bef- there's, so Peter... Thank you so much for joining, but there is like, you have so much background on your, on you, instead of me reading this whole profile of this is the great (laughs) Peter Greenspoon, maybe you can tell uh, us a little bit about yourself, just background wise. Sure. Um, Well, I'm a primary care doctor in Boston. I work at an inner city clinic, Um, sort of um, a lot of immigrants, um, a lot of sort of... um, people just trying to get by. We had a rough year with COVID, a rough year being a patient, rough year being a doctor. My clinic actually led the rate in COVID for about two weeks um, because people were pretty down and out. It was a rough year. But um, in addition to being a primary care doctor, I've been interested in medical cannabis my entire career, Um, not just medical cannabis, cannabis in general. Part of that probably has to do with the fact that my dad was Lester Grinspoon, who was a pioneer in in cannabis. He wrote the book, Marijuana Reconsidered, that, um, you know, was reviewed on the front page of the New York Times book review and really started the, not started, but really um, added fuel to the fire um, of the conversation um, about legalization. Um, He really worked on legalization um, for the last 50 years of his life. Um, You know, he was the most famous for for cannabis, but I have to say in 1979, he wrote a book um, demanding uh, that we um, use psychedelics um, in psychiatry to help people with depression and addiction. And that was 40 years ago. And what are we doing now? Um, We're doing that. He was really so far ahead of his time in so many issues. Um, I just have so much admiration for him. Um, Unfortunately, he passed away about two years ago. But, you know, he's 92. He had a 
great life. You can't be that sad if someone passes away at age 92 uh, happily in their home. Um, so, well, you know, that was the first, that was the very first book that I ever read on cannabis. And I remember there, them call, they were calling him the grandfather of medical marijuana. How come he's not the father? Is there somebody else who's the father? And he's the grandfather? I think I had to do more of this age <laughs> than anything else. Uh, gotcha. But absolutely. But that's a great book, though. I mean, it was such a good book. It wasn't just that. I mean, it was the quality of the book. And it was very brave because, you know, he started um, out to write a book. You know, what are these crazy young people doing to themselves smoking marijuana? And then he thought for himself, which no one else seemed to be able to do at the time. I mean, you know, some of his colleagues, Andy Weil, a few others, you know, all of them got in trouble like my dad did for telling the truth. But, you know, but basically he did a deep dive into the literature and just said, this is all nonsense. You know, there are some harms associated with cannabis. Absolutely. But they're being like sort of wildly exaggerated. But anyways, so not only was my dad this huge figure, so I grew up with like all these luminaries and academics and activists in my living room, like from birth. Like I was going to ask you on that because, you know, you have guys like Carl Sagan, you have people are coming to your house, like, and you grew up in, in Boston or where? Yeah, you it's outside of Boston in a okay. suburb of Boston. So, so describe, I just want to visualize it because I'm super curious because your dad is this, this person, this figure, Harvard wrote this book and he's got relationships with, you know, I guess it's like, would be like the Timothy Leary's and the Carl Sagan's and all that. How, how is that being in a household? It's, I'm just so curious. Well, it was really fun. I mean, I was a kid and, you know, there'd always be this big party going on downstairs, not just like people doing drugs, but people laughing and having these really, really interesting conversations. Like, um, and I'd always be listening, you know, and trying to make myself unobtrusive so they wouldn't Mm -hmm. notice that it was like way past my bedtime and that, you know, I wasn't supposed to be around Mm -hmm. people who were smoking. So I'd try to make myself invisible and it was just so inspiring. And, you know, as I got older, it was such a um, contradiction because in school, they'd be like, marijuana makes you amotivational. And then at home, you'd have like the most brilliant people smoking cannabis and like having these just like spectacularly engaging conversations. And like, you know, just the people at home were a lot more inspiring than like the tired old policemen that would come in every year and say, marijuana makes you amotivational. Like I just knew that it just wasn't true, the message they were giving us, like from firsthand experience. And then the other thing is that my brother um, was facing a losing battle with leukemia. And my parents um, illegally, of course, right at the start of Nixon's war on cannabis, bought my brother um, medical cannabis to use. And it, was, it helped him keep food down for the last uh, year of his life and helped him really live and then die with dignity. So I saw with my own eyes at like eight years old that medical cannabis was really a critical medicine to help people. So I went through my whole medical training and career knowing that the stuff they were teaching us was nonsense and that it was a vital medication uh, to be used. So, so your, your brother was older than you, like substantially, right? Yeah, he was right? 16 and I was like eight. Okay. Uh, you know, we worshipped him as our older brother and we just like didn't quite understand what was going on because we were little kids, but you know, he was allowed to smoke around the house and Mm -hmm. I'm writing about this. I'm actually writing a book about it, but he was allowed to smoke around the house and it just really helped them. So Mm -hmm. it just, I had such a different perspective than like the other medical students, you know, the medical students were 
much cooler about it than the faculty. It seems like the older you get, the more conservative yeah. uh, you are. But th what they taught us was such nonsense in medical school. They still only teach the endocannabinoid system uh, in about 13% of medical schools, which is just mm. like mind-blowing. Uh, how, yeah, how, no, how many siblings do you have? Well, now I have a twin brother and an older brother because okay. um, I lost my brother, Danny. Right. Um, so anyways, to make a long story short, I've been involved in cannabis my whole life in mm -hmm. activism, as a clinician, and um, as an advocate, as an educator. So can we go back a little bit? You, so when you, uh, you, know, you went through this whole thing and you saw cannabis firsthand and with your brother and everything else, and then uh, did you decide at an early age that you wanted to be a clinician, you wanted to go to medical school, or how how that whole uh, correlation uh, come up? In, and is that because your, your father uh, being you know, who he was, is, uh, did you guys want to follow in the, in the footsteps with your siblings as well, or was that just you? Just me. I always knew in the back of my mind that I wanted to be a doctor, but I wasn't in a hurry. I, you know, at, at school, I studied philosophy and religion, and then mm -hmm. I spent five years working for Greenpeace uh, between college and medical school. You know, I was a Chernobyl little Geiger counter, and I was like, we stopped the nuclear missile test, and it was really cool. So it, it was so much fun. Wait, did, but, you plant, uh, did you happen to plant hemp in uh, Chernobyl? Was that you? No, it wasn't me. But I did go there with a Geiger counter, and the Geiger counter went like off the charts. And then I was like, you know, maybe it's not a good idea to be close. So it was pretty funny. But when I was only 22, it was just sort of right. stupid, but, you know, young and foolish. But, but I always did want to be a doctor. And, um, you know, being a doctor is a really complicated thing. You could help a lot of people, but it's also sort of a traumatic thing to be. And, you know, there's such a stigma about doctors using cannabis. Mm. That I really think, you know, doctors are suffering from such a epidemic of burnout right now. And I just think that, you know, their only uh, recourse uh, if they need to use a substance. I mean, you know, in a perfect world, we'd all like eat tofu and do yoga, but most people need something. And, you know, what they're just allowed to drink. And, you know, cannabis is so much more of a helpful drug than alcohol. I think it's kind of silly that there's this taboo against doctors using cannabis. I think it would really help them. So. I, I completely agree with you, but also talk talked a little bit about opioids and your your uh, um, thoughts on opioids. Maybe uh, any personal experiences uh, that you would like to share, and uh, what you think you know opioids versus you know phytocannabinoids and other therapeutics. Well, that's sort of a complicated question. I I was going through a very uh, unhappy and painful part of my life. And I was under a lot of stress in medical school and I ended up getting very addicted to opiates and, um, I got in a lot of trouble. Then I got out of trouble and ended up, um, being hired by the, um, physician health, um, service in Massachusetts to help other physicians, which is kind of a big vote of confidence. But I did lose my, uh, medical license for a couple of years because the state police, and the DEA raided my office because, you know, if you're going to fuck up your, screw up your life, you might as well do it in style. Um, yeah. <laughs> I always believe that. I was like, lived that way my whole life. So, but I really, um, you know, learned a lot about addiction and about recovery. And, you know, there's so much more to recovery than just not taking drugs or mm -hmm. not taking opiates. It's, um, it's uh, really about like humility and connecting with people and listening to people and mindfulness and, being in the present and being grateful for what you, for what you, for what you have and not always thinking about what you don't have. Um, 
And, you know, opiates um, for some people are just like so addictive and destructive, but for other people, they're a really important tool. Like I don't want to demonize them as a doctor. I have tons of patients that need opiates to control their pain, but all things being equal, I'd much rather treat someone with cannabis because it's less dangerous. You can't overdose on it. No one's died from cannabis. Um, and the quality of life is so much better. I mean, I know from personal experience, um, you're in opiates, you're just kind of like sedated and, you know, disconnected and cannabis is much more like you're connected with other people and still like in the world. So I really try to treat people with chronic pain with cannabis rather than opiates. I, I think it's a much better medication. Now, cannabis tends to work for mild to moderate pain. If someone has really severe pain, they're going to need opiates or mm-hmm. for acute pain. If someone breaks a bone, you're not going to give them medical cannabis. They're going to need mm-hmm. like some Percocet or some Vicodin. But mm-hmm. generally speaking, I, I think we've been sold, um, you know, uh, a bill of goods about um, opiates and chronic pain. I just don't think they're that effective. I don't believe in like forcing people off of them. Like our government seems to be doing in response to the opiate crisis, because right. all that's doing is forcing people to take illegal opiates and then they overdose on fentanyl. That's like the stupidest thing ever. But I do think in terms of like treating chronic pain, everybody should be offered cannabis at very, at very least as an option. So <clears throat> I think you hit the nail on the head because one of the things that our test does at Endo is we show you if somebody has a predisposition to opioid dependence. And if that's the case, we're not making any, you know, that's up to the doctor to make a recommendation if for opioids. But at the very least, a person that has a genetic predisposition to opioids perhaps should have better oversight with a medical professional and say, hey, we're going to give you like, you know, how they do the Z pack. You're going to take this for seven days, but at the end of seven days, we have to get you off of that. So you have to wind down and there should be something of a maintenance dose. And maybe from there, you kind of go into a phytocannabinoid regimen. So what are your thoughts on that? No, I think that's absolutely great. Uh, and furthermore, a lot of the mischief you can get into with opiates is dose related. So you could use information like that to um, co-treat with cannabis and opiates and use a much lower dose of the opiates. There's sort of mm-hmm. like a one plus one equals three phenomenon when you treat with cannabis and opiates mm-hmm. so that you could use um, a much lower dose of opiates and that's much less less likely to cause a, a kind of... Um, destructive uh, dependency um if you can you can lower the dose up to like 80 percent on the opiates and it also um again the quality of life is just better with cannabis the patients that i've convinced um to switch from from opiates to cannabis uh, you know it's not that fun to transition because you have to get off the opiates but once they're off they blossom they're like thank you for getting me off these stupid uh opiates you know you're constipated you're sedated you're itchy, you, you're just like drugged out all the time. And then people on cannabis are like really functional. Yeah. It's, you know, and it's so contrary to the stereotype that the government's been pushing for the last 50 years. I mean, it's just so ridiculous that they paint people on cannabis as, um, you know, these just like people lying in the couch doing nothing. It's like nothing, as you know, nothing can be further from the truth. But you you uh, you speak, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, uh, as an expert witness too, uh, from time to time, right? On uh, on cannabis, also, and do they do they then ask you about your own personal experiences with cannabis, or is that irrelevant to being like an expert witness? How does that work? Just because you're well, a physician, that hasn't come up yet. Um, okay. And um, 
but it's really funny. They did uh, to my dad when he was testifying in the U.S. Senate. Right. And my dad, this conservative senator said, Dr. Grinspoon, do you use cannabis to try to discredit him? And he said, would, would my answer be more credible if I said I do or, or if I said that I don't? <laughs> It's like, what's the better answer? Like either I don't use it and I don't know anything about it or I do use it and I've lived experience and can speak from experience. So I just don't think that it's, that's a very good tactic to like discredit people. In fact, one of my criticisms of a lot of these addiction specialists are that they haven't tried it. I mean, you know, we don't recommend they try methamphetamine or you know, fentanyl, because those are dangerous. But like, how could you spend your whole life studying cannabis and not try it if you live in a legal state? And it's just so almost comical to read these descriptions of what being high is by uh, these addiction people that have never tried it. It's just like, I don't get it. It's like, you know, you just, if they tried it like a few times, they realize it's not this scary drug. You know, they say a drug is a drug is a drug, you know, but a drug isn't a drug isn't a drug. And, you know, cannabis is really, you can't really lump it in the same category. They tend to view things in a binary fashion, like intoxicated, not intoxicated. But it's really not like that. Cannabis, you can't get into harm with it. You can't get into mischief, you know, driving, right. pregnancy, um, all these things are up for debate. But the fact is, a lot of people use it medically. A lot of people use it for wellness. And a lot of people use it for lifestyle enhancement. Um yeah. Some people definitely use it in a harmful way. Absolutely. But you can't just, it's much more complicated than intoxicated, non-intoxicated. That's like a, a very cartoonish way of looking at it. And I feel like if a few of them would just try it, it would open up these huge, if they're intellectually honest, it would open up these huge vistas of understanding about it. And they'd actually have to retract a lot of the stuff that they've been saying about it, which is probably why they don't want to try it because that would make life a lot more complicated, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I, a great a great point, and you know it's interesting because you know the cannabis industry itself, from a business standpoint, has been shifting. So I went to this event in uh, in Toronto. I'm not going to mention which one, but it was uh, every executive from all the different cannabis companies was there. And if you start talking to them, they haven't really tried cannabis, so they're in the industry and are looking at to make money and profit on the shoulders of people like your dad, yourself, and other people, but they've never actually consumed the plant, never tried it, don't have any relationship to it whatsoever, but they're in the industry. So I I believe there should be a mandate of everybody who's in the industry, at the very least, has to have an experience with that so you can relate to it and not have these kind of preconceived notions just by reading somebody else's uh, you know, experiences with it because it's definitely a personal experience. Well, you'd also just do a better job because it's again, cannabis is really complicated, but mm. it's really complicated in a way that if you use it like five times, you sort of get it. Mm. Uh, so I, I just don't understand the lack of curiosity. Um, I always say I don't understand the lack of curiosity among, like, for example, like physicians or like addiction specialists, but I don't understand the lack of curiosity among like. If my business were cannabis, I'd want to try it. Uh, You know, like Sanjay Gupta changed his mind about cannabis. And he said that he tried it. And Mm -hmm. like, that just shows someone who's curious. Like the lack of curiosity just kills me. I don't get it. Wouldn't you be curious if your business were cannabis? If your business were beer, 
wouldn't you want to try a beer? I mean, just to see what beer tasted like. I, I don't get the lack of curiosity. Maybe I'm it's, just a curious person. And well, I, it's, I surround think, myself with curious people. Nah, but Peter, I, like, you're absolutely right. But I think there's, a, there's some fear. So there's two things that I'm getting. And I don't know, Kimberly may have a, a different thought on this too, because she's in the industry and she speaks to a lot of people. I think there's these three different factions. Number one is the people that are, you know, cannabis users and they'll use it and they love the plant and they want to be in the business. Number two is the people that are fearful of it. Like they're super, super afraid to have an adverse event. And number three are the people that say, oh, well, I took CBD. That's cannabis. Then I took a drop or I had a CBD gummy. I'm good. That's cannabis. Uh, it's not. I mean, it is in a way, but it really isn't because you have the complexity of the plant. So, you know, in order for you to have, and I agree with you, in order for you to be in the industry, why don't you be curious? At least give it a shot. And if you're if you're concerned about adverse effects, you know, less. Try a little bit. Try or take a you know a DNA test or something like that, or try a little bit uh, first to you know try one hit or something like that. One and see, exactly. yeah, Don't be marine dialed. Well, my philosophy is that if you are working in the space and you fall in camp number one, which is you're afraid of it, or there's still stigma, I can't imagine you being effective or really quite good at your job if that is what you need to overcome by virtue of the work in the industry. And so I'm very strongly with Peter in the sense that in any other industry, you would be curious to try the products at least a few times, just even know what other people are experiencing, just to have the lexicon, just to confirm you don't like it. But it's interesting to profit our work in it and not be curious, I think is actually a detriment (laughs) So, uh, so Kimberly, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna play devil's advocate on that. What if you're a pharmaceutical sales rep? Does that mean you have to try all the drugs that you uh, uh, push on uh, on doctors? But a pharmaceutical sales rep, I think you have to buy into the philosophy of big pharma and of this type of medicine. Like, for example, I remember Eli Lilly recruited me out of college, and I was like, I went on one ride along, and I was like, I don't really believe in this. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, I wasn't curious to know. Um, I did it. I thought all of it was very sleazy and I left. I think cannabis is bigger than cannabis. It is about plant medicine. It yeah. is about holistic thinking. And so it's kind of saying you're not buying into that. <laughs> or, and the social history. Like you can't divorce cannabis in the present from how we got here. Yeah. Um, and it just says that you're just doing it for the money. You're not, you're not mission driven at all. You're not connected to the social history and you're not interested in, you know, is a pharmaceutical rep, if a lot of it's for high blood pressure or for cancer or for cholesterol, cannabis is like a, a psycho, a wellness agent. And yeah. it's just, um, to, I, I think that's a, a trick question because, um, <laughs> cannabis, <laughs> cannabis is, you know, for so many people, it's like a lifestyle choice and yeah. you might not want to make that lifestyle choice. You might try it a couple of times and say, well, I don't really like this, but at least you'd understand what people are doing and why they've like, wouldn't you want to understand why people would risk going to jail for 10 years to use a plant-based, you know, wellness enhancer? Like, I just don't get why people wouldn't be curious enough to try it. I, it's I yeah, I I mean I agree. I was just playing obviously playing devil's advocate because I I'm a huge activist and I'm a huge believer that it's a connecting agent as well. 
There's nothing else. Nothing. I mean, you can have drinks of alcohol with people and does it really connect people at some point? You know, people are fighting and have a, you never see that with cannabis. Like everywhere on this pre-COVID, everywhere that I used to travel, everywhere in the world, when you smoke a joint with somebody, when you share that, you have a connection for life. Like anywhere in the world that I could go and I have this, uh, you know, somebody, they're a friend. You have this, this um, connection to an individual. And this plant connects people like nothing else. And to say that you're in this business, in the cannabis space, and you didn't have this relationship to it, where you actually connect with people over this plant, we really understand that you're in it for the money, which is fine. That's uh, your choice. But not to understand the nuances. I don't think, look, you can see in cannabis stocks right now, you can see it's difficult, but when when it's really difficult, but you have a connection to it, it's in your heart, you'll overcome those difficulties. You have to have the right game. But if you don't, if you're only in it for the money, you'll say, all right, screw this. Let me move on to something else. Let me move on to beer or, or you know, uh, anything else uh, that you want to, uh, you know, run your business in uh, another CPG product. But the connection to the plant I think really differentiates people. And I completely agree with the, with both of you. Having that, regardless of whether you're fearful or not, we're not asking you to, you know, drop acid here and have a 14-hour a, a experience or whatever uh, to take a, a hit of a, of a joint of something just so you can have a personal experience with it. I think it should be a prerequisite in this. So, agreed. Um, no, it doesn't always sit well with people. They can try it and say... It makes me anxious, but I guess right. it kills me the lack of curiosity. Yeah, agreed. So let, let me, uh, so I, I think I skipped around. You you did your Greenpeace, you did your uh, Chernobyl uh, stint, and then you made a decision at that point to uh, go to medical school? Yeah, I applied to medical school and went to Boston University School of Medicine, which was a great medical school in the sense that they really took care of the down and out. They had this old hospital, Boston City Hospital which was just like chaos. But that's a really good uh, place to learn medicine because they let you do stuff. If you study medicine at a fancy place, you just watch. And if you study medicine at a, like a down and out hospital, you end up doing everything because they're so shorthanded. So I really enjoyed studying medicine there. And then I applied in, um, I applied in primary care because I wanted to be a primary care doctor because um, it was very idealistic back then. Now, so when you do care, primary care, Peter, sorry to interrupt, just so I'm clear and our audience clear, that means you study everything because- Yeah, I'm, you, an, ad, I'm an adult general doctor. Right. Um, so people come in with everything or mm-hmm. anything. I don't deliver babies or take care of kids. But aside from that, you could walk in with anything, which is sort of stressful. It's also sort of fun because you have to know, you're like jack of all trades, master of none. Right. So I, you know, I don't, I'm not like a know-it-all. Like some people want to know everything about one tiny slice of medicine. And I really respect that. That's so cool to be like the expert. I know like a moderate amount about everything, but I'm not the expert in anything except like cannabis and psychedelics and stuff. But so the most important words are, I don't know. And I think that's a great way to be a good doctor. Like humility is the key to being a good doctor. As long as someone knows the answer, it doesn't have to be me. And I just have to get the person to the person that knows the right answer. And I work at a really good hospital that has specialists. um, And I just have to figure out what I know, what I don't know. And if I don't know it, get the person in the right place. So Mm -hmm. 
it's just really, um, you come home with a lot of great stories um, from being a primary care doctor over the years. Um, Has that changed for you? I think before Lynn interrupted you, you were about to say something about um, you wanted to be a primary care doctor when it was still romantic or still idealistic. Oh yeah. Now it's like the corporations are becoming the, excuse me, the hospitals, Freudian slip are becoming corporations. Same thing. (laughs) They're like making you see so many patients. We're on the computer. We're like doing data entry all the time for each hour. I spend, we spend seeing a patient. There's two hours of like typing and crap into the computer. You know, they're just like, aren't enough doctors. They're like, they're just torturing us. Like they're torturing everybody else. So doctors are dropping like flies left and right. Actually, my hospital, I applied to my hospital, trained me to become a certified health and wellness coach because I have this background in physician health. Um, so I, I um, coach physicians who are suffering from burnout. Um, I also do other coaching, but, and I combine that with the cannabis as well. But so I'm actually a certified coach. So I help physicians who are struggling uh, figure out if they can find a way to stay happy in medicine or to just ditch it all all together. So um, I help other physicians, but it's really rough being a a doctor in general, but particularly being a a general doctor, because you don't have enough time to, to really do what's right for your patients. And, you know, the hospital is torturing you, the insurance companies are torturing you. It's just, it's really difficult to be a doctor these days. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. I have a question of mindset. So what is your, what are your what is your feeling about mindset when it comes to healing and medicine in general? Uh, because you know you come in and I think you gave a pretty good description of it. I don't really go to you know physicians really. I, I go to herbalists and stuff, but uh, I did have to go and get my physical and all that stuff. So your doctor spends a few minutes with you. They kind of go through this checklist, uh, but they don't ask you about how you're feeling, like, how are you really feeling? And I think that in my opinion is like your, your mind is a, is a very uh, big tool in helping you overcome different challenges. And I don't think doctors talk about that enough. So I just want to kind of uh, get your thoughts on that to see if you have those conversations with patients about mindset and, uh, and this whole, maybe even placebo effect of medicine. Oh, I do. The first thing I say is, how are you doing? How are you feeling? How's your family? How's your job going? But I'm not like a, you're like typical doctor, you know, like, again, I, I'm in recovery from addiction. I would like had all the narcissism beaten out of me. And I'm like, it made me like so much nicer a person. Um, it was actually really good thing that happened to me. But um, the fact part of it's not the doctor's fault, because we're so pressured that we don't have that much time with the patients. But part of it's that medical schools care so much about grades and they should accept nice uh, mission-driven people, not people with good grades. I mean, the grades don't predict who can connect with people and who care about people. Mm. You should just, they should totally uh, redo their admissions and not do these stupid standardized tests and just Mm. teach nice, caring people how to do the science. They Mm. shouldn't pick these like, people who are great at the science but can't carry on a conversation with anybody and try to have them be doctors so i think part of the problem is they select they don't 
they don't prioritize people who can interact with other people in the selection process. Mm -hmm. And then the training is so brutal that sort of beats it out of people too. But I do think that like people get sort of, it gets balkanized into different camps and, you know, people are in the alternative medicine camp and people are in the Western medicine camp and like nobody has a monopoly. That's sort of what my book is about too, about how everything got split off um, into two camps and cannabis is sort of in one camp and it doesn't have to be that way. Like nobody has all the answers and I don't see why it has to be one thing or the other, you know, allopathic medicine or naturopathic medicine. Like we can learn from all these different traditions. And again, it comes back to humility. Nobody has all the answers. And I don't see why it has to be such an us versus them. Um, you know, if a patient comes in and I see like a million cups on them and I'm like, what's with the little circles? And they're like, well, I've been using like Russian magnets to cure my cancer. I'll say to them, I don't think that works. But generally speaking, I, I try to be open-minded and not dismissive. And, um, you know, uh, it's a big tent. And unfortunately, a lot of doctors are really narrow-minded and, and, and a lot of alternative practitioners are really anti-Western doctor and it feeds back on each other. And I just think we all have to be sort of respectful of each other. And then patients will tell the doctors and the naturopathic practitioners about each of the experiences and it'll be much better communication. So I just think we all need to sort of be open-minded about what everybody's doing. It's better for the patients. Well, I really resonate with that because sometimes in the cannabis industry, you'll have people who will say things like plants over pill, plants <laughs> over pills, which like is a cute, funny statement, but like also pills save people's lives every day. And right. like plants Western and medicine is a huge place. <laughs> right. Plants in some circumstances, pills. And, and the doctors are so dismissive about cannabis. It's getting a little bit better, but, you know, they'll go to the patient. They'll be like, you don't smoke marijuana, do you? And the patient will like, no, of course not. I wouldn't ever do that. And then you get this situation where, like, the doctor has no idea the patient's on medical cannabis. And, like, there are these two parallel tracks of care. And that's, like, the most dangerous thing you could possibly well, have. Well, also, you have interactions. You, if, you, if they don't yeah. know this, you have other um, medication that you're prescribing. Well, yeah, exactly. and like you need more anesthesia if you use cannabis every day. Like it's so dangerous. Let's zone so, in on that. What? <laughs> yeah, I need, yeah. I need yeah. more cannabis when I'm under what? No, no, no. If you use, if you use cannabis every day when you go under surgery, you need a significantly higher amount of anesthesia, which is not a big deal unless the anesthesiologist doesn't know that you're a cannabis user. It's yeah. all about communication. None of this is dangerous at all if there's good communication but the doctors do things that stifle the communication by being so snooty and dismissive about it i mean i wrote in my first piece about cannabis for harvard health which got like a shitload of page views um i said like whether the doctor's pro neutral or anti-cannabis they've got to drop the attitude because it's so dysfunctional that patients are not telling them and discussing their cannabis use. Um, and B, the doctors complain about the bud tenders giving them information about cannabis, which is a <laughs> legitimate complaint on the one hand, because bud tenders shouldn't be dispensing medical advice. But on the other hand, if the doctors don't know anything about cannabis and aren't in a position to dispense medical advice, where are the patients supposed to get the medical advice? So you can't complain that someone else is doing it and not educate yourself and do it yourself. It's so ridiculous. I mean, it's, we just need more education for the physicians and less yeah. 
of an attitude. Well, Lynn, you know, you know, I'm still on the, I would like both of you to explain to me the reason why I would need more. Well, uh, here, I'll give you an example. So I had dental work done. They had to replace like my old, old fillings with something new because they said, oh, you have mercury and all that stuff. So I had to, re- I had to have double the Novocaine. Uh, and I told them up front that I'm a daily cannabis user and uh, I feel it. You have to, I have to have double the Novocaine in order for me to have uh, uh, that effect. So it definitely is absolutely true what you're saying. But j- just to go back to the one thing before I lose my train of thought, and I'll blame it on on uh, COVID fog uh, for me. So you were talking about you know the Russian magnets and all that stuff. So because uh, I, I I'm I'm sharing my experience with COVID uh, with everybody online. I'm doing a video just so everybody can see, and it's my own personal experience. I'm not telling anybody I'm doing anything. Nobody should listen to me, but it's just my experience. So people are coming out of the woodwork and giving me suggestions. Everybody has a suggestion. So I had somebody that said, "Think about using leeches as a suggestion instead of you know like Russian magnets," but. Here's here's the difference when when you go to a physician, the physician and one of the reasons why why they may be dismissive, because we have this you know this pharmaceutical uh, angle that says well anything that didn't go through a double blind placebo study that has an FDA approved stamp on it, I cannot use this. To me, cannabis is just like using leeches, just like using Russian magnets, because there is no FDA uh, approval on this, except for, you know, Apodilex, uh, obviously, and that's it. So, I mean, part of the training is that you're, you're forced by the pharmaceutical company and forced by the FDA, that this is all you have to work with. Other than that, you may be in trouble for even thinking of recommending that. So I think that, you know, those things have to loosen up. So at least doctors can have a conversation with their patients and being less fearful of having that conversation with their patients, that they're okay to use that. And I think the angle that you talked about, the drug to drug interaction could at least be the entryway into having that conversation. No, absolutely. And in terms of, um, I make a distinction between, I mean, the whole, you know, they they prohibited uh, studies into the benefits of cannabis for the last 50 years. And now they're like, oh, there's no evidence that it works. Whereas like so many people use it for sleep. And I hate it when people, the psychiatrist sees a patient after I do and they're like, you can't be using that to sleep. There's no randomized controlled study and the patient's like, but I'm using it every night to sleep and I'm sleeping perfectly. It's like safer than Ambien. But, but the fact is like, I make a distinction if it's for a symptom or for like a disease modifying condition. So like if you come to me as a medical cannabis patient and you have a migraine, I'm happy to try medical cannabis because if my treatment fails, the worst that happens is you get a migraine. You might be pissed off at me or think I'm a crappy doctor, but the worst that will happen is you'll get a migraine and we'll give you something else, something more traditional, maybe your pharmaceutical. But if you try to treat your cancer with cannabis instead of using chemotherapy, that's actually a pretty lethal decision. We're pretty good at treating cancer these days with Western medicine, way better than we used to be. I remember when I was in medical school, 
someone had the diagnosis of lung cancer like 25 years ago, it was like, you know, you have one to five years to live. And now I have patients who have had lung cancer, you know, it depends what type of cancer you have, but who have had lung cancer for like 20 years, it's like mind blowing. So I really discourage people from trying to like primarily treat their cancer with cannabis. Now it could be an adjunct. We're learning more and more in the cell you know, in a cell culture, cannabis kills cancer cells in a whole variety of ways. So I wouldn't be surprised if cancer, cannabis is a part of chemotherapy regimens sooner rather than later, but you don't just use Rick Simpson oil to treat cancer. That's like, as far as I'm concerned, that's like suicide. So I really try not to have people use it to treat things that we actually can treat really well with um, Western medicine. So it's a a question of like doing no harm. Physicians are supposed to do no harm. So you have to give your honest opinion to people. And I always qualify it by saying, I don't have all the answers. Um, This is just the best that I know. You know, you make your own decision. I'm not God. I'm not uh, the police. You decide what you want to do, but this is just my best counsel that I can give you. What are your thoughts on psychedelics or psychotropics and and treatment because we see a huge push and you know your dad and other colleagues uh, were were innovators in this in this space but right now there's a huge huge push in uh, psychedelics and the and psychotropic treatment what, what are your thoughts well, i'm hugely in favor of it and i couldn't possibly be more excited and i there's going to be a phase of my career where i get into that um I guess a little bit immersed in the cannabis stuff right now, but I'm so excited. Um, You know, my neighbor is the head of the new MGH uh, center for psychedelic studies is really exciting. Um, But, you know, it's really interesting. Um, There's equity issues, you know, uh, well, first of all, I want to say a friend of mine um, just went down to Costa Rica and had an ayahuasca session and she hasn't had a craving for alcohol in four months. Mm -hmm. It's not that she hasn't had a drink, in four months, she was drinking two bottles of wine a day. Uh, she has not a craving to drink in four months since her ceremony. That's mind blowing. I mean, that's mm. unbelievable. Um, so I'm like so convinced that they work. But the question is, like, no one's going to pay for people to. It's going to be like a ten thousand dollar therapy. Like, I just, I hope it's not just for rich people that can afford it out of pocket. Um, you know, we have a problem with that already with cannabis with like insurance doesn't cover for it. I've like my, some of my poorest patients, I get them off Percocet and they come back in two months and say, you know, the cannabis is much better than the Percocet, but on mass health or, you know, low cost insurance, the Percocet cost me a dollar a month and the cannabis cost me $150 a month. I can't mm. afford it. And then there's also so many interesting questions about the psychedelics. Like some people argue it should be in a hospital setting. It's much safer and you should get better in the environment where you're sick so that you, um, you know, learn how to cope with things. And then other people say, you know, it's much healthier to do it in like Costa Rica and like Mm -hmm. on the beach, but then you come back. It's sort of like, it's easy to not use drugs or alcohol in rehab, but then you come back and you're like back in your stress. So there are a lot of things that need to be worked out. Uh, mm. But I'm so excited. I, I And also, like, what are they going to develop? We're just starting. I mean, just think of the analogs they're going to develop. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just think there's going to be incredible uh, future to this. We're just beginning. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I definitely agree. You know, we have ketamine as an example that you know, is being administered now. It's it's uh, legal and it's scheduled. Uh, 
but set and setting are important because now you have psilocybin. So what do you, and then you have psilocin uh, as well. Would it be, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to uh, maybe argue the other side, even though I'm in full agreement with you, because in in a setting in a that has oversight with either a healthcare professional or a mental health professional, at the very least, you know that if you're experiencing something, after your experience, somebody can download on that experience and maybe help guide you in what that experience was. But you go into Costa Rica which is set in setting, which is incredible. You coming back, and as you said, now you're back to you know your shitty job with your family and all that stuff, and you're back in that cycle, so you may not have that. Maybe there's a combination of both. And for in terms of you know um, big pharma getting involved, of course they're going to get involved. As soon as uh, we're doing clinical studies now, but with things like psilocybin, you can cultivate your own mycelium. You can cultivate your own mushrooms and have that at home. Uh, that's pretty inexpensive if you're doing it correctly in in a certain way. Once again, uh, is it does it mean that just because it's expensive and it's not being uh, covered by insurance, you're now trying to uh, you're trying to do this on your own? And you won't get the full benefit because you're not in that setting or you don't have anything, anybody to talk to. But maybe there is a telemed services that even if you are at home, you can actually speak to a professional about your experience. Don't have an answer to that. I'm just putting out different options because this is absolutely the future. It's moving in that direction. And you're going to have two factions. You're going to have the pharma who's looking at doing clinical studies now, who are doing clinical studies on some of these, and all they want is to give you a pill, and it's going to be that one-size-fits-all uh, pill as, as they do. And then the second part of that is, you know, having these experiences and these retreats with ayahuasca and DMT and all these other ones. So I don't know, but I definitely believe I'm super excited about that too. I know Kimberly is also, and we're, we're personal fans of that, but I really don't have a vision of how it's going to work out because I definitely believe there's going to be parallel paths. I think they do sort of like analogous to homegrown, homegrown mm-hmm. cannabis. I think they have to decriminalize at minimum mushrooms because yeah. it's just not, people have to have access to it who are less aff, less um, affluent. Um, mm-hmm. It just doesn't seem right. I have some friends that feel very strongly about this. They don't mm-hmm. want it to just be all in the hands of like the, the you know the natural paths. They don't want it to all be in the hands of like the doctors and the hospitals and the corporations are very worried about that. Yeah. So, and also, um, oh, it, it, I, that would go a long way to helping with the equity issues. If um, you just, and people could train themselves. I mean, you know, you can get training. I mean, there would be different echelons. Like the care might be different at mass general than like, you know, in your local neighborhood, but you still have access to the basics. You yeah. still have access to the mushrooms. So I think they, you don't want to be, remember they wanted to keep cannabis illegal and have the pharmaceutical companies wanted to have their own cannabinoids mm-hmm. that they could use. And that's why they contribute <clears throat> cannabis illegal. They can't keep mushrooms illegal. I think it part of the whole thing, you've got to decriminalize them so that everybody is active. 
Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think that helps level the social equity playing field too, because you're able to deliver a very, very inexpensive product that you can teach people how to cultivate their own. Same thing with at-home cultivation of cannabis, and it helps. Uh, and then uh, and then maybe you once these programs come up, and I, I like you know Pennsylvania's program, for instance, when you have a cannabis program, you have to contribute a certain portion of that to social equity, which then will take some of that medicine and give it to the people that can't afford it. And then everybody has equal access to that. So uh, I think, uh, you know, we have a lot of work to do in that space. Um, Okay. Sake of time, I have a a few questions for you, uh, really, really difficult ones. uh, So get ready to start thinking through these. Um, Please describe your first experience with cannabis. Well, my I can't describe my first experience uh, because that's going to be in a book is coming out. Um, And it was uh, when I was like preposterously young. Um, But I, I think my first experience was when I was that I can describe is when I was 12, which is still sort of young, but not as young. And um, I was smoking with my twin brother and our best friend, Marcus on the Cape. And we had no idea what we were doing. And my parents were out sailing and my dad would have beat the crap out of us if he knew. Cause he had this thing, like the drinking age back then was 18. So we weren't supposed to use cannabis till we were 18, um, the drinking age. So, and of course we were 12, but who could resist? We just grew up watching all these adults <laughs> having these brilliant conversations. It also got me to read and to study really hard. It, like I was the most inspired kid, but you know, they could say don't use cannabis, but it's like, do as I say, not as I do doesn't work. Um, and so, and we were so excited and so nervous that I actually dropped a match on my T-shirt and burnt a <laughs> hole about this big in it. And I didn't know what to do because uh, it was like cold out and I couldn't like plausibly go home to my parents without a shirt. So I went home um, with this shirt that had a burn hole that was like this big through it. And my mom's like, what happened to you? And I'm like, um, 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 I walked into someone <laughs> who was smoking a cigarette. It was the worst lie that a 12 year old could tell. And she's like, you walk into someone smoking a cigarette and that burnt a hole in your shirt. That's like eight inches in diameter. And she uh, didn't believe it at all. It was really embarrassing. But the funny part is we just like everybody else spent the next like eight hours. Like, are we high? Are we high? Are we high? Are we high? And it's so funny how people do that. They have no idea um, if they're high or not. And it's so, it's so funny that you say that because I, I ask these questions of everybody and you're absolutely right. A lot of people, you're not sure because you, you heard about what it's like being high, but when you consume, it's like, well, I'm not seeing anything. There's no visuals. Am I really, is it really working? I have no idea. So yeah, that's, that's and really, And the first really time it really works. I mean, it hits you like a truck. You don't <laughs> not, you know, it's the funny part is, but you don't know that until it happens. Right, right. Good point. Okay. So uh, I'm obviously a big music guy uh, and uh, wanted to ask you if uh, you remember the first concert that you ever attended. Oh, the first concert, yes. I was visiting my brother, David. Uh, He's really cool. He's an astrobiologist and a writer. My brother, David, is like the coolest guy ever. And he was at Brown, and he took us to this band that wasn't that well-known yet. Um, And this was in 1980, like 1986. 
Um, wait, let me think for a second. No, there was like 1983 and they were like the most amazing band and it blew my mind and I had no idea who they were. It turned out they were U2 and <laughs> this was in a concert hall with like 200 people and mm-hmm. it just blew my mind. So we saw U2 right when they, it was like their first tour yes. country. Sunday Bloody Sunday. Exactly. And we were like 20 feet from the stage, but we didn't know that they were going to be huge, but they blew our minds to shreds. And of course we were like 14 baked out of our skulls and it was just a, <laughs> like, it just, it was a transcendent experience. That's, uh, do you remember, do you know what the last concert you attended was? I'm just curious. The most, yeah, the who, I saw the who under a full moon outdoors in Fenway park last summer. Uh, wow. It was just like, that was transcended too. I couldn't yeah. believe how I'd never seen the who before and they looked great uh, yeah. for their age. And just to see like 55,000 people under a full moon singing pinball wizard together. Yeah. was so cool. Yeah. I saw them last at the uh, desert trip, the old cello, they call it. Oh, so I cool. saw them. Yeah. It was, it was a really cool experience. Um, all right. So what, what has cannabis meant in your life? Oh, that's a complicated question. I mean, you know, cannabis, uh, cannabis sort of took on sort of like a, almost like cannabis was like the fab, the sort of like the fabric of meaning in our life after my brother Danny died. Cause it really helped him. It propelled my dad to fame. It, um, really helped me feel like it helped me figure out what I wanted to do in my life. The thing about cannabis that people don't, that don't use it, don't understand is that it can really give you insight and help steer you in the right direction. Like I find it like is really good for like self-correcting or you know, not that I'd admit the current use as a doctor, but I do find that it, um, it does like, you know, you could smoke it and you could be like, wow, I didn't handle that really well. I should have done this. And you end up apologizing to someone or you think, wow, what if I do this? And all my best ideas that I've ever had have come under the influence of cannabis. A hundred percent of the good ideas that I've ever had in my entire life have come under the influence of cannabis. So it just um, has meant so much in terms of connecting with my brothers, connecting with my family, connecting with my dad, connecting with my friends and relatives. Um, and also professionally, it's like really um, just given me so many creative ideas and given me this great community. Now, I do have a lot of friends and relatives and people I'm really close to that don't use cannabis, some that are anti-cannabis, some that have never tried it. It's not like that's a prerequisite for me to be close to someone or to connect with them. So it's not like, you know, um, it's necessary or, you know, sufficient, but I'd have to say it's really, um, it's really enhanced my life in, in a lot of ways. And, you know, it just, um, it's so interesting. Again, this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Like anybody who's tried it completely understands what I just said. And anybody who hasn't tried it just thinks that what I just said is nuts. And that's the, that's the irony of it. Like there's no way to explain it to someone. That's why it's unique about cannabis. Like you just can't understand it unless you tried it. Would you agree with that? It's it's such a, I've never heard anybody explain it in the way about self-reflection that you just did. But as you were saying that, 
it made me think of all the times where like I got in an argument or I yelled at my daughter or something like that. And when I consume, it makes me self-reflect to, oh shit, I sh- I could have done it differently like this. And it go makes me go back and want to have a conversation and apologize. You're right on. And no, you cannot describe it. Like we describe experience of cannabis. So you're high, you know, but you can't describe that. What you just said, you hit the nail on the head. I completely agree with you. So like, you know, for example, my dad was a really intense guy, like really brilliant, really intense. And mm-hmm. honestly, he started smoking cannabis for like the last 30 years of his life. And he just became like nicer each year that he smoked. Mm-hmm. Like he was always really funny and generous and mission driven and charming and dedicated to making the world a better place. But he became like easier to talk to and more down to earth every year that he smoked. I'm convinced it just made him a better, like a nicer person. Um, Yeah. Maybe I can get my dad, Uh, even though we did have an experience in Jamaica once. And I do remember him, uh, you know, being kinder. Actually, he started being kinder over the years. So maybe he's closet smoking right now without telling my mom. So (laughs) makes sense. Um, Okay. Bonus question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. Oh, Grateful Dead posters, posters of the Kinks, Greenpeace posters, Jimi Hendrix poster, Who poster. It, we were like children of this Hendrix. Um, you know, that picture of Hendrix with like, you know, the machine gun and the cigarette. Um, we were children of the 60s. Like we grew up in a conservative suburb, but in our household, it was like Woodstock you know, everybody else was drinking gin and tonics. It was like cannabis smoke billowing from our house. <laughs> it was just like the bastion of uh, rebellion in the conservative suburb. It was really funny. I love it. That's great. All right, Peter, where can people find out more about you, contact you, social, everywhere else? Uh, oh, they, on my website, petergrinspoon.com is easy to contact me if they want to contact me. Um, and also um, on Twitter or on LinkedIn, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm pretty active on both of those. So I'm around. Great. Peter, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. This was great. I really had a great time. And uh, yeah, me too. When, when you get your book, uh, please come back on and promote it. We'd love to have you back. Absolutely. Um, and it was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.